0: Hey everybody! Welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King, and you're listening to the photography podcast dedicated to getting you out there on an adventure of your own. I know that all of you have full time jobs, full time families, but you bought that camera for a reason. So pack your gear, grab your camera, get out there, get a flat tire. It's time for a photog adventure of your own. It's episode 157. Yes, I came back. I came back for the next episode right away. Thank you so. So much for downloading this one and getting ready to enjoy another Photog Adventures podcast. In this episode, it comes to us from June. I think the first week of June when I was talking to Alan Wallace. And during this time, back in June, we were both suffering through the lockdowns. I mean, okay, all of us were suffering through the lockdowns. But then, talking about photography, having spent months just sitting indoors, I thought it was bad for me here in Utah. I mean, really, I didn't think it was that bad, but I thought it was bad enough that I couldn't get out there, and the places I wanted to go were closed down or locked up, and I was missing on opportunities. Man, Alan Wallace had it much worse. In Wales, they had a five-mile limit for driving. So if you could make it to the store, groceries and other needs, that's it in five miles, come back home. You couldn't travel further. I do not have it that bad or I did not have it that bad back in June. And so Ellen Wallace taught me what real lockdown was like. And so we start off talking there. But before we get into this, I want to let you guys know about a workshop that I'm doing with Mary Beth Kaczynski. You guys know her awesome Milky Way photography work, right? But she also loves chasing Aurora. And we've always talked about doing and doing a workshop together and going out for aurora somewhere we can't go to alaska right now there's a quarantine we can't go to canada but the next best option is going to the upper peninsula of michigan From there, you can capture tons of great aurora right over Lake Superior. And so Mary Beth and I have set up a nice November, cold month of November, 9th through 16th, seven-night Milky Way photography workshop, where we're going to do Milky Way with what core is still visible for the first 16 minutes. Okay, let me catch up back. We're going to go and do sunset. And from there, we'll do Milky Way until the Milky Way is low enough and at an angle enough we want to transition to doing deep sky. So if you want to learn star tracking and do star tracking Milky Way and star tracking deep sky photography, this is going to be a great Workshop for you. Again, seven nights, a chance to do it. And it's seven nights because we're going to be looking and chasing for Aurora. We want Aurora to happen. We can never predict Aurora, but giving us seven nights is a good opportunity to be there. So if you guys go over to workshops.photalkadventures.com or even the direct link to the Aurora workshop information down below, you can join me and Mary Beth and four others that are already going out there for November. We have four slots left of the eight. And so check Check it out. Join us in the Faroe Islands. Join us in the Upper Peninsula. Don't let photography be over for 2020. There's still a great chance. And you know what? Let's just be honest. Around November 9th, what's going to be going on? Recounts and catch-ups for the election that happened on Tuesday the 3rd. So we... Let's all get away from the nonsense and craziness and have fun in photography up in the Upper Peninsula. So, guys, check that out. Uh, again, workshops.photocadventures.com. But now, let's get with Alan Wallace, the Milky Way photographer from Wales, UK. Love this guy. He has fantastic photography, and hanging out with him again is always funny as ever. So, enjoy this, and catch you guys in the next episode. The, the
1: five miles is actually quite new. That, only, that was only given to us like last week. Before that, you were only allowed... To- to take like one short walk a day for exercise, basically. So
0: only the five one. mile
1: thing's like a huge plus right now.
0: <laughs> How long has it been since they've given you at least five miles? Um just over a week, I guess. Really? Really? Only yeah. a week now that you've been able to travel that far. My gosh. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I asked him where he's been going for photography lately and he's like, I I can't even remember where I went last because it's been so long. <laughs> You were saying, and I don't recall if it was during the time we've been recording this episode or not, but you were going to be out in La Palma with Rafa, and you go out to the Canary Islands all the time. What a Mm -hmm. huge bummer that you couldn't go out. Is it because you couldn't leave your country or because La Palma wasn't receiving anyone? Both. uh, The flights were canceled,
1: Um, coming in, going out, and even
0: I think La Palma is still not accepting tourists right now. I wondered about that. I was going to try and go to La Palma this July, but we canceled it months ago when I realized what was going on. But I haven't checked the tourism information. I have a trip to New New Zealand that just got canceled for August. And so I was holding out hopes there. With La Palma, let's start there when we talk about Milky Way photography. I have never Mm -hmm. been to the Canary Islands. You've been to Tenerife. You've been to La Palma. Uh Which one's better? And tell us why. Oh, that's a question.
1: <laughs> um La Palma's definitely darker. Tenerife's got a little bit more light pollution. Um I mean it depends what you like. I mean Tenerife's Tenerife is more convenient. Like the the roads are easier, and nicer to drive, and there's plenty of places to park up and different like rock formations and all sorts of things you can photograph. And La Palma is a bit more it's a bit more of an effort like the the road to get up onto the mountains is like an hour of really tight winding really like yeah and it it, it drains you and you have to do this every <laughs> night you know to go up and then you after you finish shooting you got to go back down that road but like you have to be focused man it's like <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's really dangerous. Let's talk about just your process. When people think about Alan Wallace's Milky Way photography, what do you want them to describe your process like or your Milky Way photography like?
1: um, I think people appreciate the planning that I put into my shots and that I don't do composites. Like the images I take are actual pre planned alignments rather than just, oh, there's a nice landscape. I'm going to. Photoshop a Milky Way onto that. Amen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't get any enjoyment from compositing. It's more about the pre-planning and just having the vision, I suppose, to find a nice landscape scene and think
0: about the best sort of Milky Way that could complement that scene, if at all possible. What do you find when you enter an area ends up becoming the biggest challenge to that goal?
1: Um, usually access So, you know, <laughs> the, the best places are always areas that you have to trespass. <laughs> it always seems to me that you, the best shots that could have been are always, like, the ones you
0: can't access. <laughs> There's so many photographers you hear about all the time. It's like, well, I stood over there on that ledge that almost fell apart because mm. I wanted that shot.
1: I just am not that yeah, kind of really guy. Yeah, it's really sad, man. I mean, especially in places like Iceland that have got, like, the most incredible geology and it's so, so fragile. Oh. And they just receive so many visitors. It's insane. And just they all just do the same thing. There's the barrier, but they all want
0: that shot sitting on that rock on the edge of the cliff. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> when you do plan to go somewhere that you've never been, how do you make sure that you get the most out of it? Is there anything? You said you're good at planning. Can you describe yeah. what's your strengths in planning?
1: Um. Yeah, that is a good question. I I love Google Maps. I mean, Google Maps and Google Earth. The amount of information you can get from like the satellite view. Sometimes people have put like three sixty spheres on the map as well, so you can check those out and kind of get a feel for different areas and different places, and you know, just checking out other travelers' vlogs and blogs, that kind of stuff. Um, I used to like I used to do a lot of my research through other photographers. But I sort of stop doing that now because I don't want to go to a place just to take a photograph that I've already seen. Uh, gotcha. And I found myself falling into that trap, especially in places like Iceland, where you just you just all go and take the same pictures. It's just <laughs> it's not very fulfilling. So I'd much rather get an idea of what's in the area um before I go. And obviously a light pollution map will dictate how much effort I put looking in a particular area of a map, let's say. Gotcha, yeah. Um And then, yeah, it's all about just actually just going there and getting your feet on the ground and exploring and hiking and walking around in the daytime because, as you know, finding a composition at night is just, like, impossible. So you really have to, like, go in the daytime and, you know, find some nice compositions and some interesting features of the landscape that will help you sort of
0: create an image that tells a story and explains that place, you know? So when you're thinking about trying to find that story that explains the place, uh do you have certain elements of composition that you tend to fall into and in and in repetitively you always kind of seem to fall into? I like this the most, I like that the most. What in compositions are you looking for that says, "Okay, I love that."
1: I love a good epic mountain, I suppose.
0: <laughs> ah, yeah. Um but I think I I
1: I focus more on the foreground. I'm always looking quite intimately at a landscape, and it's. I think when you're traveling to a new place, it comes so much easier because you've got this. This sense of novelty, where everything is completely new. And so, like, you see a plant that you've never seen before, and I'm like, "What the hell is that thing?" And like, it just <laughs> kind of becomes like, "I want to take an image of that because that's something unique to this land and this landscape." And. And I think that's, I don't get that in Wales anymore because I am i grew up here and I'm so used to it.
0: Yeah, I hear you.
1: I struggle with that. And then a, a friend from Turkey came over um, a few months ago and like it was so interesting to see Wales through her eyes and she was just sort of looking around and being amazed at what to me is the most mundane thing. <laughs> it's nice to kind of see Wales through eyes of somebody who's never seen Wales before. I, I love that novelty of like seeing something you've never seen
0: before. <laughs> get reminded about what to appreciate, what to celebrate that's right here at your feet. I do that all the time with the mountains next to me here in Orem, Utah. I mean, it is something that I can walk out on this balcony right here and see the whole face of a beautiful mountain. And because it's the local mountains, I never take pictures of them. (laughs) <laughs> and yet, it's something that if I was in the middle of Kansas and this mountain was there, it would be a state or national park because of this mountain. <laughs> but here in the Rocky Mountains area in Utah, it's just more of the already here mountains. There are other ones that we celebrate more than this one. And so it's interesting how we become blind to something interesting to us. One of the greater challenges in Milky Way photography is getting there during the daytime, When you do, you start to see your composition, but then the distractions like trying to get an image that has the elements I want, but I get rid of the distracting elements can be a huge challenge, especially if I'm using my 15 millimeter and I've got way too much information on the screen, or if I'm trying to do a panorama and now I'm trying to plan something that I'm trying to visualize, but I don't know exactly how it's going to all come together till I see it back on the camera, all stitched together. Is there anything that you do to help yourself get rid of distractions from your f- composition where it's just... Nice, solid composition from edge of the frame to edge of the frame. Um,
1: I think when I'm wandering around in the daytime, I'll use my mobile phone quite a lot just to take sort of sample images. And I've got a a Samsung phone now, so it's got a wide angle as well, so I can kind of think about whether I'm going to go super wide or just sort of standard 24 mil. So it's nice just to wander around with your phone, kind of take some references and have a little look at how the images might look and how you can, I suppose, hide things that you don't need just to try and keep things nice and simple and nice and clean. Yeah, I mean, you
0: do have a gallery full of really nice, clean-looking images. What are you doing in maybe post-processing or in your capture that is keeping the sky and the ground looking so soft?
1: Um I think for the, the panorama helps massively. I mean, I, I obviously do quite a bit of noise reduction before I even stitch the panorama, and then you know the panorama increases the resolution of the image, and then the noise becomes so small as a relative size to the overall frame that it, it's just barely noticeable. Noticeable now, and I mean that image is quite old now. I don't. I mean, I still do panoramas, but I've started working on sort of tracked panoramas. So you're tracking the sky whilst doing a panorama, and you just get insane detail, just completely noise-free results. Um, so panoramas are great, man. Especially if you're just starting out, um, you can do, you know, simple panoramas with a very basic
0: camera and lens, and the quality of the image just it comes out so much better. I have to echo that about the panorama. There's You don't even have to stack to have a better quality image with a panorama versus a single image. The panorama is brilliant for making mm-hmm. what was a little noisy at that ISO, a little noisy at that long of a shutter, or that ex- situation in that dark of a sky, but you combine it all together in the panorama, they all fix each other, and just, ah, I love it. And I love seeing the stars in this image, and you have... A situation here in Wales where your Milky Way core is so low on the horizon all the time, which is most likely why you travel so much to get to different locations to see that core.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's that. And, I mean, June and July, we don't have a nighttime here. We have twilight. (laughs) Right right now, you have astral twilight
0: at the most every night. Yeah. Right at the peak of Milky Way season, it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is the worst. I can't imagine living that far north. Yep. Now... We're going to get into the stories, my favorite part. So I have three images here, Alan, and we're looking at them through Skype so he can see the images that I'm going through. And I'm going to start with the Milky Way-related one, then we'll go into the Milky Way Plus Plus Meteor Shower, and then over here with the Pleiades. So Alan, this image with the moon underneath the full arch of the Milky Way, just set the scene, give us the five to ten minute Cliff Notes version of what it took to get here, what went well, what didn't go well, why you love this image.
1: Um, I think it was like the first time that I'd seen the Milky Way so clearly whilst the moon was in the sky, and that was just like a real testament to how dark it is on the Palmer it's insane it like I thought the you know I'm so used to the Milky Way just disappearing <laughs> as the moon comes up, and like the moon came up, and I was just like still watching the Milky Way just like glowing and it was just it wasn't going anywhere um obviously, you don't get as much color out of it as you would if the the moon wasn't there. Um, But I saw this opportunity where the moon was rising directly under the arch of the Milky Way. Um, So I stuck around. It was like the dying moments of the morning. Um, So, you know, I'd been shooting for probably like six or seven hours. And then just waiting for this last sort of opportunity to get a photograph of the arch with the moon underneath. And I found this sort of dead branch, which would kind of act as like a nice... Well, the two dead branches, which I kind of felt would act as a nice sort of what we call anchors, just to ground yeah. the shot and just to like, you know, like almost cornerstones and sort of limits to the outer edge. Um, so that was my foreground. We had the the cloud inversion, which was amazing. So I was above the clouds. I would have liked the cloud inversion to be higher, but <laughs> there's some things that you can't, <laughs> you can't control. At least there was um, a cloud inversion because it's awesome having one. Yeah, but it's like it's so normal on the Palma. It's like oh, most really? nights you have. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. Oh, like awesome. you wake up in your hotel in the morning and it's raining, and you're like, Yeah, it's fine, that's cool. And you just <laughs> jump in your car and drive above the clouds. How it's about I just go above, above
0: the clouds now?
1: It's raining, but who cares? Oh gosh, that's amazing. It's paradise. <laughs> but yeah, you <laughs> and then you've got the so the bright um planet on the upper right is actually Jupiter. Saturn was like right in front of the Milky Way core. And then the other bright one in the middle is Mars. And then you've got the moon coming up. So there's just like this really awesome, like, perspective of the ecliptic and the moon and the planets all following the same line. Uh-huh. And the galactic plane, the Milky Way is sort of arching in a slightly different direction. And it's just like that perspective to me at the time was just like, whoa.
0: <laughs> Celestial bodies overload right here in one end. Yeah. yeah, man. <laughs> With this image, when you were trying to get your foreground decided on how much to crop in and how much to crop out, were were it those two branches that anchored and gave you your context? Okay, here's where I want to frame it.
1: Yeah, so I kind of, you know, I could see where the Milky Way was arching and I kind of needed something just to close off the left edge. So that sort of little bundle of rocks on the left edge was always going to be like a nice book end for me
0: yeah
1: and i wanted something in the foreground just to have a bit of interest rather than you know just open plains of dirt basically and that that little branch was perfect <laughs> so i kind of and then the other dead branch so they kind of help each other um you know ground the image so i sort of stood myself in a position such that i knew that those dead branches would sort of be somewhere in the bottom
0: corners With this kind of a shot where it's a panorama, it's hard to really plan how exactly the distortion will frame your foreground in front of you. Did you put any forethought in that or was it more or less – let me just – instead of leading you to the question and the answer, what kind of forethought goes into your panorama compositions? Um,
1: I I think it's just having – some interesting stuff in the foreground in the right places and I think it's something that comes the more you do it the more you kind of get used to sort of standing there and like swiveling your head and trying to picture how it's all going to look as a flat rectangle basically (laughs) I think with time it kind of sometimes it surprises you and it looks nothing like you pictured but I think the more you do it the more you kind of get used to you know the concept of taking a 180 degree view and sort of flattening it into a into a rectangle, but I like to have stuff that kind of closes off the ends um, and just sort of frames everything quite nicely. So you can see in this image, there's like a nice, almost like an arch in the foreground that kind of mirrors the the Milky Way arch as well. Yeah, so I like having that balance and that sort of
0: framing going on. One thing that I have to give you big props for is that it is easy to go and do a panorama of the Milky Way core and end it right about the end of Jupiter Roafuki, depending on what's going on out here. And you continued up the hill in a way that helps kind of symmetry. It was more symmetry as well as bookending on both ends with these rocks. And did you go extreme far right and far left and crop down to this? Or did you purposefully make sure that you got that on the far right because you knew it was going to turn out to be something that would be perfect for the left side?
1: Yeah, I think in my head those two rocks were always gonna act as like okay. the the book the bookends like you, you put on the bookshelf sort of thing that would help sort of <laughs> right balance it all up. But I definitely shot extra. I always shoot extra, and then you can crop. You have a lot
0: more comfort. Yeah, uh,
1: when you're cropping later on.
0: With this kind of Milky Way, it's looking like you were towards later in the night where it was higher up in the sky, and you have to fight that really tall, tall, high up in the sky arch, the peak of the arch. And so, what I tend to do is I give a lot of headroom and overlap up here. Do you think you took three or more rows to get this panorama to come out?
1: Oh. um... Can you remember Do you know what? I think this was in my crazy days when I used to shoot panoramas with a 14mm, so I think it's too...
0: (laughs) So, (laughs) I have some thoughts as to why that's crazy. Uh, What are your reasons for saying that shooting a panorama with a 14mm is crazy? So, the 14mm lenses, I mean, the wider you go with the lens, the more distortion
1: you have. So, when you try and stitch the panorama, there's so much parallax going on and so much distortion that they become very difficult to stitch. And a lot of software just won't stitch the images together unless you have like a crazy amount of overlap. Whereas these days, I'd much prefer to do my panoramas with a 24mm um,
0: because they have much less distortion. Uh, and
1: it's much easier to stitch together.
0: Absolutely. Same exact points. I always tell people a 50% overlap because I don't know which lens they're going to use. And a 50% yeah. overlap kind of fixes all of that fisheye almost wide angle that is going to be a little more distorted and it comes together still just fine. But I find that my 24 millimeter Rokinon panoramas are almost 100%. I think absolutely 100% successful. It's only been my 15 millimeter panoramas that have sometimes not turned out due to certain elements. And so I'm glad you said that you confirmed one of my feelings on the topic. And I'm glad to have a second witness. Awesome. Hmm. So then looking at this shot before we move on to the next one. Um, I gotta ask you this shot, single image with the moon as well. And you were able to get that much detail in the Milky way, all of this single image, or did you blend two different time periods? Um, no, it was all, all taken
1: at the exact same time. And you can tell that because if you look very closely at the, the mountains, you can see where the moonlight is illuminating, like the mist. Mm-hmm. I do see that. Um, and in like in like the it's so beautiful in the full res version when you zoom in and you can see like the beams coming off like the peaks it's beautiful. Um, I don't think you'll get much detail out of that JPEG mm, to be honest. Yeah, but.
0: honestly, I see what you're saying, and I assumed that was the case, but I wanted to ask because you do have yeah, yeah, there's enough space between this moon and most likely it's not a very illuminated moon. A very is this a crescent? Is this a tiny? I- I think it it was a pretty big crescent, yeah. Pretty big crescent. It wasn't at least towards a quarter yet. You can, it's keeping you from washing out the Milky Way, but at the same time, any other image that has no moon, there's a much difference in the color. It's like a a quick silver Milky Way when the moon's out, and a detailed image Milky Way when there's no moon at all. So you can definitely see that most likely the moon was in this, but I've been impressed by how much clarity you got on the entire band. Are you a Mm. dodger and burner when you go into post-processing, or you leave it to just global interactions with your sky that make your Milky Way pop?
1: I, I used to dodge a boom. I don't really do it much anymore because I finally just looks so unnatural. In this instance, I don't think I did that much, to be honest. I, I remember being myself just like blown away by how much detail was still in the Milky Way from <laughs> La Palma, even though the, like, the moon was up. Right. Um, but that, that was completely blown out of the water when I went to... Chile, and I went to the Atacama, uh, not the Atacama, sorry, the Alma Observatory, which is like uh, just over 5,000 meters in altitude, and because the atmosphere is so thin, the moonlight doesn't scatter as much,
0: Ooh. so
1: even with like a, it was like a gibbous moon, and the Milky Way was still crystal clear, it was insane.
0: You're kidding me, a gibbous uh, moon? Yeah. Oh, actually, if, if you
1: go to um on my website, just go to 360. There's like a page for 360s.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna check this out right now. Oh, there's 360s. Yes, so you're telling me that you had a gibbous moon, which is over 50%, over probably 70% illuminated, and still just because of at the Alma Observatory in Chile, you had clarity on the Milky Way that you never expected. So, like,
1: look how, look how, yeah, look at that. Oh
0: my gosh, yeah. The moon's okay. right, right next to the Milky Way as well. <laughs> it's not even that far away from the Milky Way. And you're, you are you basically, <laughs> it basically looks like one of those underexposed beginner Milky Ways when there's no moon. You know, it's got as yeah. much detail potential as it could, just a little underexposed. Wow, that is amazingly clear crazy, for right? the moon being yeah. that close. Normally, like you said, the atmosphere would just pick up all that light and you'd be shooting through a bed sheet of moonlight before you ever saw the Milky Way. But that is nuts. ALMA Observatory, and this is not in the Atacama. This is a separate location.
1: Oh, it, it's yeah, it's it's in it's in the, the same Atacama desert
0: area. Yeah. Cool, your 360s. I'm freaking jealous of this. Uh-huh. Ah, another checkbox for what I'm jealous of with Alan Wallace. Awesome. so let's check it out guys on if you're in the podcast driving to work because you finally get to go back to work or you're just traveling somewhere remember to go back home and check out alan wallace's website alanwallacephotography.com and go to his 360 it's one of the menu options in the top right you can't miss it you can see what we're talking about right here so before i leave this image was there anything about this image that you wish could have gone better that if you go back and try and recreate it you would change
1: I don't think there is. It was quite a fun image because it was... It I had to take it very quickly because Twilight was starting shortly after the moon came up. And as you can see, the Milky Way is getting quite high. So it was like it was a race against time to do the panorama before <laughs> yeah. the Milky Way was too high, before Twilight
0: kicked in. And I knew if I didn't get that shot, I couldn't do it the next day. And so you were... That's not exactly... What you would change, you just knew that it was – everything went so well. It kind of fell together all at that rush moment of I fi- I completed the image just in time. And yeah. you couldn't probably yeah. recreate this. I mean there's such a great bunch of elements in here that makes this a fantastic image. Just, I mean, for one – having Jupiter out here in this empty negative space makes it more interesting Mm -hmm. than it would have been. And having uh, the Jupiter all the way down this side of the Milky Way core now, and won't even see it over there for years. I'm not even sure when we'll see it on that side right there again, but it's something that I can see it as a memory that you can't recreate it all turned out really fantastic. And, you know, it's one of my favorite moon with Milky Way images. Yours and Brad hmm. Gold painted probably my favorite ones because I'm such an anti-moonist. I, I try to get <laughs> rid of the moon <laughs> anywhere I go. And if the moon's up, I'm like, see ya, I'm sleeping. So let's move on to another element. This is Milky Way, not the core, but the Milky Way on the north side combined with a meteor shower. Which one was this? Perseid? Uh, is this a... That was the, the Geminids. The Geminids. I'm like, I'm, I could probably look mm-hmm. at the Radiant and say I, I know what constellation it is, but I really wasn't. I, I couldn't because the Perseids <sighs> is higher than Orion. So yeah, Geminid. So for those who haven't tried the the challenge of getting a meteor shower image, what was your workflow here and your process for capturing this shot?
1: Uh, So we spent a lot of time looking for a good foreground. But the other thing with the foreground was that we wanted to be a little bit away from the main road and all that. We didn't want any lights coming out and we didn't want to get disturbed by any other people. So we made sure we did like a nice little hike um, to get to our location just to make sure that we wouldn't be disturbed and there wouldn't be other other people around. Um, And then, yeah, you just got to settle in for the long night, basically. So take some comfortable stuff to sit on, some nice warm clothes. (laughs) Um, And I got my, I did my foreground first and I think it was a stacking of, of a number of exposures. And then aim the camera up um, just to take in a bit more of the sky. And then you just got a time lapse of the entire night, basically. So you have like an external power bank to power the camera, have a lens warmer on the lens as well, just to make sure that doesn't mist up. You just got to keep that baby going all night and just make sure it's still firing all night. You got to keep an eye on it. That is something. Make sure everything's going good.
0: That is something that sounds easier than it is. You can easily mess that up. But once you have it working Mm. and it's just taking the pictures for you, it is. It's the greatest moment of just complete ease, relaxation, Milky Way photography. I love it. Yeah,
1: man. And it was such an incredible show. I mean, I I have experienced meteor showers before. But when you're in such a
0: dark place, it's like, (laughs) wow, it's
1: relentless, man. It just doesn't
0: stop. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing being there on a peak morning where it's just all of a sudden, I mean, you're starting to count them and then you start start giving up. Up because you've hit in the double digits by the time that first minute's over. Let alone what the yeah, yeah. whole hour was delivering. So it is awesome to be there and a great one. With this situation, um, how many meteors did you end up not including in the final stack? Were there any that just weren't oh, as interesting God. as these? I think there were a
1: few I left. Like obviously, a lot of satellites I left out. Yeah, um, I'm pro- I probably tried to include all of the meteors unless they were like too small. Gotcha. Um, so if they were any smaller than what you see, I probably wouldn't have bothered. But.
0: With this kind of composition where you're planning on the night sky being the most interesting element, you said you tilted up a little bit. So this is a vertical pano in a couple images? Yeah, in a sense, yeah. In a sense, you just kind of made it a little bit bigger than a single image framing? Okay. Yeah, just because, I mean,
1: I find, like, when you're when you time lapse in for a meteor show, there's not much point having a the foreground in the shop because
0: you're not going to catch any meteors there so like, just to maximize the chances just sort of tilt the camera up a little bit right on were there any challenges that you didn't expect to have that came up that night that you had to overcome
1: i wouldn't say it was unexpected but the wind is always pretty mm. it's not that, it's not that the wind is strong it's just constant and relentless so it, <laughs> like it, it really is a mental thing like it gets to you, man. Chinese no, water I, I drop always, torture. I always tell people about it. And then when they go there, they're like, oh, yeah, this is fine. And then two hours later, they're like, oh, okay, now I understand. It's really starting to piss me off. <laughs> it's like a slow torture. <laughs> the constant. Yeah. And the, the other thing in this image as well, if you look, especially sort of to the horizon, it almost looks like airglow. glow. There's a like yellow color that you can see. Kind yeah. Of bursting out. Thin clouds, right? No, it's actually sand. You're kidding.
0: Sand in the wind?
1: Yeah, so the um, it gets picked up from the Sahara Desert in the high winds.
0: That is interesting. Um, I've
1: never seen that before. Yeah, it's
0: it's, it's called
1: the Kalima. Can you spell um, that? Because I've never heard of it. Quite, uh, Kalima. I think it's K A L I M A. Kalima. Kalima. Um, it's quite a common. Problem. I, don't, I don't know how many days a year it happens, but you sometimes get. It sticks around for a few days sometimes. And there was one time I was in Tenerife where. Um, it was almost like a sandstorm where you could barely see like a few hundred meters. It was just – everything
0: was orange, and it just felt very Star Wars-esque. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, I'm adding mm. up my elements of things to watch out for in Milky Way Photography. Okay, are the clouds going to be there? Is it going to be maybe um, too foggy? Is it going to have smoke in the air blocking my sky? <laughs> Now I have to add Kalima, sand. a potential <laughs> sandstorm, if I'm off the coast of Africa, I assume. That's the only time I'll have to worry about that. Yeah. But man, that's incredible. I thought it was thin clouds getting some air glow or getting some light pollution glow, but it's actually cl- uh, sand in the atmosphere higher than you. Was it hitting you at all or just all high in the atmosphere? No, no I, I didn't even notice it was there until I saw the images. Okay, so it's nothing like a blasting um, of sand every now and then. No, you don't
1: really feel it. But that one time in Tenerife, it was pretty obvious to the eye. Interesting. Um, But you don't really notice it, like, hitting you or anything. (laughs) I have
0: not thought about this ever. And I can't imagine it (laughs) ruining a Milky Way shot. It just sort of adds a ton of color right there in the area on the horizon. (laughs) Interesting. That's crazy. I never would have thought that you'd bring up something that I've never heard of before. But you managed Mm. to do it. Let's go on to the third image, and then the episode talking about this. You're proud of this image. What stands out? Um, it's you. You are pointing towards a comet, and you have um, the Percy. You have the um, Pleiades as well as a meteor in the shot. So it's hard not to be proud of it. But what stands out for you? I mean, did I just take your thunder by even naming all the things in the image?
1: Well, it's, it's not so much naming them. It's more like the distances. So like that was oh. that was actually my friend Jens. Um, who was with me on the trip? And it, like, uh, that was Comet 46P Weir Tannin, which was pretty close to Pleiades for a while. So I was like, oh, yeah, why don't you just jump on all those rocks over there and I'll get a photo of you with the comet? And, <laughs> and this was actually the second different composition that we tried. The first one didn't work out so well. And then, yeah, as he's doing it, like this meteor just streaks across the sky, and I'm just like, what? Like, yeah. so you've got these like four elements. I mean, like, like, it's quite rare to have a comet in the sky, anyway. So you've got like, yeah, my friend Jens, who was like, he's like hundred meters away from me. Um, meteors burn up in the atmosphere at a height of like 85 to 100 kilometers. The comet was like 11 million kilometers away, and then Pleiades is like 444 light years away. So it's like the the biggest depth of field you could possibly imagine
0: in a photograph. (laughs) That's a really good point, the perspective of of our distance from things that we're looking at as light travels. Now, the comet is minutes away from us as light's traveling. The meteor is almost... I guess it's instant, instant light travel practically. And then the, yeah. the the tens of thousands of years of light coming off of the Pleiades stars. It's just uh, what an interesting concept to think about and put into perspective <laughs> where we are. I think what I get out of Milky Way photography is less about the final image share as it is during those nights that I'm out there. The therapeutic... Zen that I feel being yes. out under the stars, like I've come home in some way. Yeah, it's it, yeah, I, I see what you mean, and
1: it's nice when, like, especially now when I've been stuck in this sort of light like polluted area for so much, it's like when you get back out there, it's like meeting up with an old friend. <laughs> exactly. And it's like you know, it's as if like it was only yesterday. Like here I am again. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> and it's nice to like, there's like you can go to like different places all over the world and have that feeling. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're in the States or La Palma or in Chile. It's like it's the same core. And you're just like, there you are, dude. Like, (laughs) Nice
0: to see you here again. (laughs) I have only seen the Milky Way core since I've been doing photography outside of the United States in the Faroe Islands. I've actually never pulled off a shot. I never could... Pull it out in Italy. I never could see it there when I was there a couple trips. And I never pulled it out in Denmark because it was just constantly too light polluted in Copenhagen and cloudy. So it's, you know, and realistically, you've seen it on more different areas of this earth than I have. And it's interesting mm-hmm. thought. And you see, it's like, there he is. There's the old core. <laughs> there, there are no boundaries, and, there's no borders. <laughs> you have to go to the southern hemisphere. Oh, amen. I was going to. <laughs> it was. Dude,
1: it's it's so crazy to, to see it at the zenith. Like, it
0: glows. It's insane. Oh, they glows at zenith? Because I've never seen the core that high in the sky. Never. Yeah. Never.
1: It's, when you, oh, and you're just lying down looking straight up. Into the core, it's really something else, man.
0: <laughs> my favorite thing is to go to Goosenecks and camp on the ridge right there, where like my camera just doing <laughs> on a tri, tri- on a time lapse, and so I'm sitting there in a cot, laying up. And after you've kind of fallen asleep for an hour, and then you wake up, your eyes are incredibly adjusted for the dark, and you look up, mm. and immediately it's just. It's almost claustrophobic, the amount of stars you're seeing, and it's just right on top. You're like, whoa, it smacks you yeah. in the face when you wake up in the middle of the night and you see it. I can't even imagine what it would be like to see the core, all the billions of stars that are the core right there at Zenith above my head. How amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was just about to see it in less than two months from now, August 17th. Why? Well, Why (laughs) COVID-19? Why? Before we leave, and before you remind everybody where to go to follow your content, what would you say to someone who is going to go out and do Milky Way photography for the first time? What would you say is the bare minimum they should know before they go out and capture their first Milky Way? If you can... Say that even succinctly. How could you how could you just possibly describe it?
1: Um, so I would say don't go out there expecting to see what you see in the photographs because obviously the cameras can Right do a long exposure, get a lot more detail and colour, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to be as good as the images. Like seeing the Milky Way with your naked eye is far better than what any camera at this moment can even capture. So <laughs> just enjoy the experience
0: of it basically. Yeah cherish and savor every minute of it. Mm -hmm. Well, Alan, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Where can people thank you for doing what they're doing to go subscribe to your YouTube channel and follow you? Where are the best places that they should be going on the internet to follow you?
1: Yeah, I mean, Instagram. I don't post much on Instagram these days, to be honest. But YouTube, I find, is the best way to connect with people. Like, the connection I have with my YouTube audience is so genuine. I love it, man. So if you
0: come over to YouTube come and subscribe, come and get in the comments and have a chat. I'll be awesome. That'd be great. Say thanks to Alan right now and go before this podcast ends and click the subscribe button, hit the bell so you don't miss the next video. Really, really can't wait to have Alan Wallace back on again. Thank you guys for hanging out with me on another episode. My night and my release date is going to be Fridays. And I'll keep that up. And any episode that I finish early, I'll release right away. Because you know what? I have lots of episodes I want to talk about. And a lot of interviews that I have coming. So it will be great to keep this going and make the next year, the fifth year of Photog Adventures, the best year yet. So thanks, guys, again. Have a good one, and get out there. Get away from the COVID. Get away from the politics, and have an adventure of your own.